Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Glenn Elmers. He is research fellow at Hillsdale College and senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. His articles have appeared in Claremont Review, Modern Age, National Review, and, and many other places. His new book is The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. That is our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Elmers. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here, Mark. Well, first, generally, uh, who was Harry Jaffa? So Harry Jaffa was a longtime professor at Claremont McKenna College, uh, was the intellectual founder, really, of the Claremont Institute, which was founded by some of his students in the 1970s. Uh, prolific author. He's probably known best as a Lincoln scholar. He wrote a really path-breaking book that was published in 1959 on the Lincoln-Douglas debates called Crisis of the House Divided, which was really the first book to challenge the historicism uh, that was dominant in the academy at that time, and to really take Lincoln seriously as a, philosoph as a philosophic statesman, and to take seriously the moral arguments behind and leading to the Civil War, which surprisingly uh, were not really taken that seriously um, at the time. And then he continued, he wrote another uh, sort of a sequel to that book many years later called A New Birth of Freedom, which came out in 2000. And then in between was a uh, a major figure in the conservative movement, um, battled with various factions of conservatism um, in order to defend what he thought was the, really the only thing worth conserving uh, in America, which was the principles of the American founding informed especially by the Declaration of Independence and Lincoln's understanding of that. So that's a thumbnail sketch of who Jaffa was. Let me just add one other real quick thing. He was really one of the first students of the great German emigre scholar, Leo Strauss, who may be familiar to some of your uh, listeners. Uh, Strauss fled uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s and then taught for many years at the University of Chicago. Jaffa, who I wrote my book on, uh, met uh, Strauss early on in his career when he was still teaching in New York at the New School for Social Research. Um, and Jaffa played a large part in uh, what had been come to, call, come to be called the Strauss Wars or the interpretation of Strauss's true teaching. And Jaffa actually uh, was maybe the only Straussian to have his own school, <laughs> which has come to be called West Coast Straussianism, uh, which captures really Jaffa's especially political as opposed to merely academic or abstract understanding of political philosophy. Hmm. You begin with an episode from 1969. You jump right in when Jaffa is at Claremont. And as we know, all the, all the anti-war protests were hitting campuses very hard that year. What was Jaffa's take on student unrest in those tense 
days. Right. So Jaffa was right in the thick of it, uh, which is where he liked to be his whole life um, and was not the only one, but really kind of the leader of a small group of more conservative professors who really objected to uh, both what he called the gangsterism of these threats. And, and it really was more so than, than today, the, the tumultuous uh, times of, of the 60s were really violent. I mean, Claremont McKenna, I opened the book with a, a bombing that occurred in which a young woman uh, was maimed uh, when a, a, a letter bomb was, was put into a professor's mailbox and exploded when she picked it up. Um, and she was very seriously hurt. Um, a very historic building on the Claremont campus was burned to the ground. An another bomb uh, occurred a few weeks later. And in the midst of all this, uh, Jaffa and some other conservative professors uh, insisted that the college could not give in to this kind of uh, extortionism and gangsterism, uh, threats that were being done uh, in the face of this violence for, you know, the various things that were being demanded in the 60s. Uh, affirmative action in different kinds of academic programs, uh, ethnic studies, and so forth. Um, but to Jaffa's chagrin and the chagrin of his few friends there, uh, the administration capitulated totally, uh, which got them nothing, by the way. <laughs> that that That's the and, thing. You, you capitulate, yeah. and they just want more. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so a line I quote in the book, which, which uh, Jaffa uh, mentioned often when he talked about this, you know, Churchill said, uh, you, you're willing to uh, trade your honor for peace, and in the end, you'll have neither peace nor honor. And that's what happened then. And it seems to be, it seems that we're going through the exact same thing uh, today, yeah. uh, which is why I opened with that story. I, I'd like to hear the word gangsterism uh, applied a little more often than, than it is. <laughs> it's a great Indeed. term, isn't it? It is, it yeah. is. Now, now he, did, he grew up, even as a child, he didn't mind a good fight. No, not at all. In fact, that's another anecdote I mentioned in the beginning. So Jaffa, you know, lived a very long life. He died in 2015 at the age of 96. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I studied with Jaffa and, and a lot of his students are still around. Um, but because he lived so long, it's sort of hard to, to appreciate. He was born in 1918, which is really quite remarkable. Hmm. Um, and in those days, you know, life was a little rougher around the edges and he got into some schoolyard scuffles. Uh, his, his mom actually sent him to school one day in a sort of, uh, little Lord Fauntleroy outfit because she was a seamstress and made, and, uh, Oh, he, oh, uh, now, now, come on, Glenn, he was so cute. He, I can just see his mother saying, you're, you're so cute. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm sure the teacher's buddy was cute, but the other boys didn't uh, find it so impressive. And so, no. Um, he got into it, and his, he, they moved around quite a lot when he was growing up. And so every time he started a, at a new school, you know, he just sort of had to show his medal on the playground and got into some fights. But uh, unlike today, he was not traumatized by that. And um, when he went to Yale at the age of uh, 17 to study English, he joined the boxing team, which, uh, which co was coached, by the way, by Gerald Ford, of all people, huh. who was his boxing coach at Yale. And um, Jaffa didn't keep up with his boxing career, partly because he got a little smacked around a little bit too much in one of his first bouts. But um, he was never afraid of a fight, either physically or politically. Did he grow up an atheist? And did he remain, um, he, did he remain so? So he grew up in a very sort of culturally aware Jewish household. Yeah. Um, 
before World War II, his mom and his grandmother had always sort of fantasized about going back to They were German Jews, uh, in some way, had fantasized about going back to Europe and visiting their ancestral homeland in Germany. But then uh, after the Nazis arose, of course, they, they abandoned any affection they had had for Germany. And while uh, they were certainly aware of their Jewish heritage, neither of his parents were especially devout. Um, Jaffa was, um, um, again, I, I would say certainly culturally conscious of his Jewish heritage, but was not a particularly devout practicing Jew. Mm -hmm. uh, did he face a lot of anti-Semitism in his later youth and, and then when he went to college? Yeah, so that's an interesting little story. Again, born in 1918, he was probably right on the cusp of the last vestiges of really official anti-Semitism in the United States. So when he graduated with his English degree from Yale, he wanted to go into graduate school, and his other passion was political science. And his um, faculty advisor, a guy named Harvey Mansfield Sr., whose son became a very famous professor at Harvard, Harvey Mansfield Jr. But Harvey Mansfield Sr. told Chaffa, uh, those two fields are closed to you as a Jew. Uh, so just either decide you want to do something else or pick a different field. Um, but he was a very stubborn guy and didn't accept that and ended up getting a teaching job. He did get a PhD in political science and got a teaching job at Ohio State and was actually the first Jew, along with a guy named David Spitz, uh, to, to join the faculty there. And so he kind of was a barrier breaker of some of the last vestiges of official anti-Semitism in the United States. What did Leo Strauss mean to Jaffa at that young age? Uh, an absolutely, utterly transformative experience. Uh, he once mentioned that Saul on the road to Damascus was mm. not as transformed as I was by my encounter with Leo Strauss. Um, if I could just back up a little bit, I mentioned in talking about his Lincoln book, Historicism, which is kind of a technical term from political philosophy. Uh, which just means basically historical relativism, right? And the, the absolutely dominant idea then, and it's still quite dominant now, um, was that we really can't know anything uh, from a different age or different culture. Uh, we're all trapped in our own little cultural spheres. Um, and so there are no transpolitical truths uh, to be known. And Leo Strauss, really, when, when Joppa took his first courses with Leo Strauss, he heard for the first time a challenge to that idea. All through his whole four years at Yale, he had just imbibed this dogma of historical relativism. And then when he encountered Leo Strauss, who treated especially the ancient Greeks, I mean, Strauss was a very prolific scholar who studied the whole history of Western political philosophy, but was really especially focused on the ancient Greeks. And when Strauss told Joppa, look, we can actually learn something from Plato and Aristotle that might be true. Right. That was an astounding idea to Jaffa um, and uh, absolutely transformed him. And, and he, although he was a Lincoln scholar and very interested in America, he always sort of uh, retained this, this central focus on the permanent questions from philosophy and political philosophy about truth and justice and wisdom um, that he'd learned from Leo Strauss. Why were the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858 so crucial to Jaffe? Uh, two reasons. So one, um, there's a wonderful little anecdote that he liked to tell, which I mentioned in the book. 
So he had taken a, a course from, from Strauss on Plato's Republic. And those who know Plato's Republic may recall that there's a debate that Socrates has with a character named Thrasymachus about the nature of justice. And Thrasymachus represents uh, conventionalism, right? There is, there is no natural justice. It's all just whatever people decide. Uh, again, a variation on this idea of relativism. Um, and you know, Socrates uh, sort of defeats him and shows that there is a natural basis for, for justice. And Chaffee just happened to be in a used bookstore in 1946, a year after he took this course, and is thumbing through a book in a used bookstore down, down in, in southern Manhattan and comes across the debates, the, a, a book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and starts reading and is absolutely thunderstruck to see that Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, his opponent for the Senate, Illinois Senate race in 1858, are debating the exact same issues that Socrates and Thrasymachus debated. What is the nature of justice? Is it, does it have a basis in nature, as Lincoln said, or is it just whatever people decide, which was the so-called popular sovereignty position of Stephen Douglas? And Joppa was astounded by this, and it proved to him that Strauss was right, that the permanent questions uh, are really there. The same issues, the same uh, confrontations about the nature of justice persist through time and place. So that's the first part. The other part is Joppa became convinced that Lincoln in the Civil War went to the very heart of the meaning of America. He always oriented his understanding of America around the Declaration of Independence, which is something he learned from Lincoln, and particularly the idea of human equality. Human equality was the absolutely central element of natural right that defined the regime. And so we always came back to that. And this was encapsulated at an extraordinarily high level in these uh, philosophical debates between Lincoln and Douglas in 1858. Wherein does Jaffa find the greatness of Lincoln, the pre-1860 Lincoln? Right, right. Uh, so you can um, appreciate Lincoln's really real philosophical depth, which is all the more extraordinary considering that he was really just self-educated. Uh, you know, certainly didn't go to uh, an Ivy League school, really, <laughs> um, just by, by studying uh, the law, by reading Euclid, and especially Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a very uh, important part in Lincoln's education, and, and Jaffa himself wrote wonderful, uh, beautiful, illuminating essays on Shakespeare whom he regarded as a kind of a classical thinker in his own right. And Lincoln absorbs uh, through his own native intelligence and voracious reading, a kind of a philosophical understanding of politics. And you can see this in the way Joppa treats two of Lincoln's most interesting and, and most profound speeches, uh, the Lyceum Address in 1838 and what's called the Temperance Address in 1842, which are really deep philosophical reflections on justice and the nature of man, and the, the temperance address would be especially interesting to your, to your listeners uh, who are interested in religious themes, because it's really all about the questions of moral reform, um, sin, redemption, damnation, uh, censure, and how this ties in with the necessity for civic friendship in a Republican form of government. So Jaffa, I mean, uh, Lincoln clearly had a deep philosophical mind, but then also directed his, his energies and his talents to politics and showed himself to be an extraordinarily capable political man. Uh, his, his ability to use rhetoric, his ability to, to draw out um, um, the best arguments suitable to the occasion, to form friendships, to, to 
sympathize, I mean, the, the, the genuine sympathy that Lincoln had for the plight of the slaves and his ability to articulate that in a way that connected with people without seeming sort of high-handed or condescending and steering the way between the very extreme currents that were dominating American politics at the time, you know, the pro-slavery position on the other hand, the abolitionists on the other hand were a different kind of extremism. Lincoln was just not only a, ph a philosopher, but an extraordinarily capable uh, political figure. And Joffa was tremendously impressed by that. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Do you think that Jaffa regarded Lincoln, especially the post-1860 Lincoln, in excessively messianic terms? He did at the beginning. Um, Jaffa changed his mind about a couple important things, and one is in, in his um, 1959 book, Christ of the House Divided, he uh, portrays Lincoln and, and uses these terms um, uh, as a messianic uh, savior almost. Um, so at that time, um, Jaffa had a somewhat lower understanding of the founders, right, that he had um, adopted a little bit from Leo Strauss was very critical of modern philosophy. Um, and uh, Jaffa and some of the other Straussians um, kind of just assumed that because America was, was modern and was influenced by modern thinkers, that it operated on this, uh, uh, you probably heard the expression, low but solid, right? Uh, low expectations, no real emphasis on virtue, uh, just sort of acquisitiveness, you know? Um, and that was his understanding of the founding which was really just an assumption. Um, and he thought that it was Lincoln who really saved and elevated and purified uh, the best elements in America. And he does see him as a kind of messianic figure. But he was really uh, criticized for that uh, by some people, especially um, a fellow named Wilmore Kendall, who was a political theorist at Yale, who Joppa actually befriended and respected. And Kendall pushed back against this overly... Um, uh, religious understanding of, of Lincoln. And Jaffa starts rethinking some of these things and comes to see that, that all of these great elements that he sees um, Lincoln bringing into America, so to speak, were already there from the beginning. And he begins to revise his understanding of America and sees that there's an inherent nobility already there, that a proper understanding of the Declaration and its natural theology shows that Already, you have a conception of the good life, of human happiness, of natural right. Um, that's already there. And so while he retains a very high understanding of Lincoln, he um, reduces the messianic and the savior elements because he comes to see that the nobility that he, that he saw was already present in the founding from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Does he believe that the Declaration of Independence was really the first political document uh, in accord with the Gospels? 
yes, in a way. So um, Johnson sees America partly because he's a patriot, but partly because he's a political philosopher in a very significant, almost world historical sense. And that's because, um, yes, as you say, um, the principles of, of the Declaration, in a way, implement for the first time on the political level um, the Gospels, the possibility of true Christianity, um, the rule of Christian gentlemen, which is a term he uses, which I'll explain in just a minute. And um, a line, a very famous line that everyone knows that Jesus uses in the gospel, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And that really takes a long time to work itself out uh, and finally uh, manifests itself or, or uh, becomes real in the American founding with A, the separation of church and state, um, and the possibility uh, for the first time really of a religious liberty that will allow Christianity to, to flourish without coercion, right? That is as a true act of freely chosen love rather than um, the official theocratic regimes that you had all through Europe at the time. Um, really kind of the way Joffa understands Jefferson inhibited the true flourishing of Christianity because it was always um, tainted in a way by compulsion and religious warfare, but religious liberty in a way for the first time, and several, by the way, several ministers in the founding give sermons on exactly this point saying, now with the advent of religious liberty, you know, officially implemented as part of the American regime, Christianity can flourish for the first time as it, as it should have. Um, and so Joffa develops this at great length. Uh, uh, the meaning of, of religious liberty is of essential importance to him. And he sees America as in a way the political fulfillment of promises that were laid down in the Gospels 2,000 years earlier. Why did he like Shakespeare so much? Uh, again, uh, he saw Shakespeare as a kind of a philosophical thinker, too. Joppa wrote a, um, a very interesting book with Alan Bloom in the 1950s called Shakespeare's Politics. Um, and it's really one of the first, amazingly, one of the first uh, books to take Shakespeare seriously as a political and philosophical thinker at a very high level. Um, uh, Shakespeare, uh, you know, addresses themes of, of uh, justice and love and friendship and the limits of politics and the possibilities of politics that are, are really extraordinary. And, and so in Joffa's uh, writings on Shakespeare, including a wonderful essay called um, the unity of uh, tragedy, comedy, and history in Shakespeare's moral universe. Uh, he sees Shakespeare as constructing literally a kind of cosmos uh, for the display of human greatness that is a kind of parallel to the Platonic cosmos in the ancient world. Um, and Shakespeare, um, both for Lincoln and for America more generally, was a kind of a conduit of classical thought. And so every frontier cabin that had a copy of the King James Bible and of Shakespeare had access in Joppa's understanding to both reason and revelation. <laughs> hmm. uh, the King James Bible uh, offered revelation and Shakespeare as a kind of conduit of classical thought offered the possibility of a, a kind of a classical philosophical education. Uh, Jaffa could, could turn a phrase and... <laughs> 
probably his most famous phrase is something about uh, uh, extremism and, and, and some, some <laughs> gold water or something. Can, can you recount that episode for us? Right, right. If, if I could just give a real quick mini commercial, I have a piece on uh, Claremont Institute's uh, American Mind page um, on that. Um, you know, the Biden administration is really pushing very hard on this uh, domestic extremist line. Um, but Jaffa uh, wrote Barry Goldwater's 1964 Republican nomination acceptance speech uh, in San Francisco and included that famous line, extremism in the sense, sorry, let me slow down. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of virtue, uh, in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Um, and uh, it was a very controversial line then. Um, but Jaffa, all, all of all of Goldwater's handlers wanted it out, right? Uh, a lot of them did want it out, and it was Goldwater himself who insisted on keeping it, um, and in fact, double underlined it in his text, and really emphasized it tremendously when he delivered the speech. But the audience loved it. <laughs> I mean, all all the official organs of opinion. Uh, were aghast, but the thousands of, of Republicans who were there at the convention listening to the speech erupted in tremendous cheers when Goldwater delivered that line, in part because he was reacting to, so he had, the moderates in the party had been sort of carping and complaining about Goldwater being an extremist for many weeks leading up to the convention. And so part of the reason those lines are even in there is because Jaffa wanted to give Goldwater uh, a way of pushing back against this extremism charge. And it really comes out of partly he had adapted it from Martin Luther King, who talks a little bit about extremism in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail speech, uh, which had been given a little bit earlier. But also this comes out of Aristotle, who teaches in the Nicomachean Ethics that virtue is a mean, but a mean is a peak. It's something high. Uh, the, the truly virtuous man is extraordinary. He is a man of superlative character. And so what Jaffa had learned from Aristotle and from his teacher, Leo Strauss, is that true virtue really is a kind of extreme. Um, and so that's, that's all part of what was going on in that speech and in those lines. Yeah, yeah. Now, Jaffa, you suggest that Jaffa anticipated the current identity politics. Would the woke developments not have surprised him? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, in 1989, when the Cold War was winding down, people were celebrating. They thought, oh, it's the end of Marxism and even the end of history. And Jaffa was much more, I won't say cynical, but much more realistic. Um, and actually, he was a little worried. He said that the, the vanquishing of, of the Soviet Union means that um, the political face of Marxism is going away. But this might actually be more dangerous. He predicted this in 1989. Uh, all this does is cut off the exposed part of Marxism, but the roots are still there. And he particularly pointed out that they were still there in the academy and the universities hmm. um, and might actually pose an even more serious threat there unless they were uh, rooted out, uh, which they certainly have not been. And so already in 1989, he's saying the roots of Marxism are very deep in our intellectual class. Um, and he worried that that um, that was a danger still very much that needed to be confronted with that. And he was also aware of um, the way term, the term racism gets misused um, and appropriated 
Uh, he talked about that in the, in the 80s. You know, the first iteration of political correctness in the 80s. Um, uh, you know, one of the things uh, Jaffa talks a lot about in his Lincoln writing is uh, how Lincoln opposed the really the most the most philosophically interesting defender of the Old South was John C. Calhoun, uh, who defended the so-called positive good uh, of slavery. But Calhoun was a historicist and a defender of group rights. And Jaffa saw modern day identity politics uh, as this kind of a variation on Calhoun's hmm. um, uh, group rights doctrine. And so all that's really happened, Jaffa could see, is that the the group rights of Calhoun, in which uh, whites were supposed to dominate blacks, were simply being inverted by the, the black power movement and other things that were emerging already in the 70s. And Jaffa could see that the racial politics <laughs> of Calhoun were simply being flipped upside down. But, but both sides rejected the idea of colorblind equality, which is what he wanted to defend all along. Hmm. Now, in the battle to keep the universities from succumbing to the left, Jaffa didn't expect any help from sort of the, the, the liberals, did he? No, no. Well, he didn't expect that much help from conservatives. Yeah. He was really uh, disappointed in establishment conventional thinking on both sides. And he thought that, that you know, the Washington consensus establishment of both conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans, were kind of disappointing. He really thought that, that um, most mainstream um, political figures and even most mainstream intellectuals um, uh, really were not terribly principled, and neither side really defended the principles of the founding uh, of natural right in the way that he wanted to. No, no. L last question. I mean, there's so much more yeah. to talk about in in the book, um, and you you cover a lot of a lot of history uh, and politics in here, as well as the academic debates over Jaffa's ideas. But let me ask you finally about one term that was very important to Jaffa, and that is gentlemanship. What, what, what yeah. was that? Right. So we um, have a slightly distorted understanding of that because we connected to um, sort of aristocracy, right? You know, the old English idea of the gentleman, sort of someone born to a noble family. And really, that's not what the ancients meant by it at all. And that's really the way Jaffa was looking at it. In Aristotle, there's a Greek word, spudaios, um, which his teacher, you know, Strauss, translated as gentleman, really because there's no better word. But what that meant was a morally serious, responsible, upright person who takes responsibility for civic affairs. Um, and Jaffa thought that in any Republican, small r, Republican form of government, it has to be the moral gentleman, the responsible gentleman who takes charge that's the kind of people that elections are supposed to select and put into power. And the moral, the moral gentleman um, represents a key figure in Republican government going all the way back to Aristotle, which really has nothing to do. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of uh, gentlemanship by birth. Um, um, it's really the, the, uh, what Jefferson called the natural aristocrats, right? Not the pseudo aristocrats of the old uh, aristocracy by birth, but the natural aristocracy that would flourish in a regime without um, inherited privileges uh, in which merit really determined. And, and in that situation, the moral gentleman, the responsible 
man um, is the one who should rule by nature. We need that. We sure need that (laughs) right now. Uh, The book is The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. Glenn Elmers, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.